Amen. Thank you, Bonnie and Linda. Spectacular as always. If you have your Bibles, please open them up to Isaiah chapter 14. And then we're going to go through verses 14 through 32 to the end of the chapter, that is. And um, we'll get into a few different things. Uh, But before we do, I wanted to kind of give you guys some historical context because you all know I love maps. Um, I do. So what we're going to do is kind of talk about what's going on with all of these different oracles because we talked about Assyria at one point. And on this one, you can't really quite see it, but this is the Assyrian and the Babylonian empires and how much they expanded over this region. And as you can see, if this is the majority of the reason that you, a region that you know is the known world, and this is Assyria taking over everything, it kind of seems like they're a big deal. Um, they are, again, the superpower at the time. Go ahead and to the next one in particular. This one shows exactly what they did. They came and they conquered Babylon. They conquered uh, Ararat. They conquered over here into, I believe it's Turkey. And then they also went down into Syria, Israel, Judah, tried to conquer Egypt. That includes Philistia um, and Tyr and all these other areas. Um, So this is why, though, you can kind of see again why there's such a long oracle against Babylon and why there's such a long oracle against Assyria because they, again, are the major prideful powers. They believe they can conquer anything because they are literally conquering everything to them at the time. But we also want to get into the more detailed map. Go ahead to the next one. This is Israel and Judah at the time. And we see, you know, Syria's up here. And they were talked about in the first 12 chapters along with Israel. Um, We have Ammon, Moab, and Edom. And we have Philistia over here. Basically, all these immediate nations that are right next to Judah and Israel are going to be talked about with these oracles against them. And so I want to give you guys, okay, this is where Philistia is. This is who's going to be talked about right now. And these are the Philistines. We're going to talk about them today. Um, We're also going to talk a little bit more about Assyria, but ultimately... It's going to be more about them. So now you all know, and I know you are all very thankful for this <laughs> history lesson. I love maps, so I don't know. That's me. Um, so how about we go ahead and go to the verses themselves. Um, and we're going to start with, again, verse 24 through 27. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be, and as I have purposed, so shall it stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my land, and on my mountains trample him underfoot, and his yoke shall depart from them, and his burden from their shoulder. This is the purpose that I have purposed concerning the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? All right, so these verses form a closure, in a way, to the oracle against Babylon. And and the reason for this is uh, why, since we're talking about Assyria. Um, But as we saw previously, the attention on Babylon is as much to show how Babylon is the archetype for pride. And as such, one commentator put it, the symbol of pride for these people. The question we can then ask is, if Babylon is the symbol, is there any nation which currently actualizes it? And at that time for Isaiah, there was, um, and it was Assyria. So it is, God has planned to deal with the proud. That God has planned it and purposed it means that it will be accomplished. God is not fickle like humans. He will bring about his purposes in this world. It is his world after all. But what is it that God has purposed? And the answer is that the Assyrian will be broken. Assyria is the nation which actualizes, again, the proud Babylonian oracle. Just as God has promised throughout um, to end the proud, so it will be the case with the Assyrians. 
With the fall of the Assyrians would come the end of their oppression, hence the yoke and the burden being lifted from all these nations. The final two verses conclude the oracle. The Lord, the covenant God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the sovereign over all the earth. Though the nations, such as Assyria, may seem to have conquered all the known world, in all truth, God has decreed that they will come to an end. If God has decreed and made it, uh, this purpose known, then the outcome is inevitable. Nothing can hinder God. Though human pride has been seen to desire to hinder God's purposes and even to rise up on par, if not above him, in the end, God's will be done on the earth and not these nations or these kings or these peoples. Now we come to the second oracle. In the year that King Ahaz died came this oracle. Rejoice not, O Philistia, all of you, that the rod that struck you is broken, for from the serpent's root will come forth an adder, and its fruit will be a flying, fiery serpent. And the firstborn of the poor will graze, and the needy lie down in safety. But I will kill your root with famine, and your remnant it will slay. Wail, O gate, cry out, O city, melt in fear, O Philistia, all of you, for smoke comes out of the north, and there is no straggler in, its, in his ranks. What will one answer the messengers of the nation? The Lord has founded Zion, and in her the afflicted of his people find refuge. So now we come to the second oracle in this discussion of these different nations. Um, And this is the second time in Isaiah we find a point of reference with a particular prophecy. The first was in chapter 6 at the death of King Uzziah. Um, Still, the dating of this has been difficult though most concluded it's likely occurred around 315 BC. So when Ahaz died around that time, this oracle occurred. And now the oracle is against, though, Philistia, as we know them as the Philistines. Isaiah tells them to not rejoice. Now the question that should immediately come to our minds is, why are they rejoicing to begin with? The answer is that the rod that struck them is broken. The most consistent meaning to this is that a king had passed. As to who the king was, there is much speculation. Some conclude that it was Ahaz. The problem is, however, that Ahaz was never very strong against the Philistines, even losing against them on a number of occasions. Um, so he wasn't really a, really a strong rod against them. Likewise, though this oracle occurs in the year of Ahaz's death, it does not mean that this necessarily pertains to him, and that that can again be only a point of time reference. The most likely explanation, then, is that the Philistines are rejoicing over Assyria's struggles. Around this time, there was internal turmoil within the Assyrian Empire. With this turmoil came the potential for many nations to break away from the Assyrians. Indeed, it is likely this internal strife is what led to the Philistines believing that they could start a coalition to end the Assyrian threat to the region. If this is the case, then the warning is clear, and that though the serpent, that is Assyria, was no more in its aftermath, would bring an even greater enemy. Even more than a slithering adder, it would bring a flying fiery serpent. As it is, this is exactly what happened with Assyria, as after the turmoil ended, Sargon II took power, and he expanded Assyria's empire to its greatest height, and so did the two other kings after him. Um... So then the scene then shifts to the meadow where the poor. <laughs> oh, this. Oh, that's weird. The scene then shifts to the meadow 
where the poor are taken care of. We notice they are not being trampled on, but instead are in safety, and most importantly, there's peace with the people. This likely represents God's people who, in comparison with their neighbors, like the Philistines, were not strong. Yet what about the Philistines? What becomes of them? God will bring destruction upon them. Oswald, who is a commentator, notices the language here is similar to a siege. Oftentimes, sieges led to famine for the cities and a mere remnant of the people remaining within the city. Thus, the strong in their cities are seen to be deteriorating in contrast to the poor in the meadows in peace and in God's hands. The discussion of judgment against the Philistines takes its greatest form. The gate, oftentimes the place for the elders, but also the point of security for a city, wails. And the whole city mourns over the coming destruction against them. What is coming upon them will cause them to seize and fear. The smoke from the north is evidence of the Assyrians who would flow down Philistia from the north. The smoke then either represents the cities which have already been put to the torch, or it represents the army itself coming against the Philistines. Verse 32 ends the oracle in an interesting way. Scholars wonder what the answer to the messengers means. If it is true that the Philistines were proud enough to try to seek to rebel against the Assyrians during their empire's unrest, then it is likely the Philistines sent ambassadors to neighboring nations to join in their rebellion. Similar to what Israel and Syria had done in joining forces against Assyria, as we had seen previously, where they tried to get Judah involved. And Judah was like, no, no, we're going to trust Assyria. Um, as it is, it's often the case that for a foreign threat can make strange bedfellows with nations. But that is the response. What is the response to the Philistines? If they, they're going to come with their ambassadors to Judah and say, hey, let's form a coalition, what's the response? Well, the response is, no. We will not join your coalition. The trust and assurance of Judah is not found in coalitions and alliances with pagan nations, but it's found in God. He is the foundation for Zion and in whom they have their peace. While the Philistine city will be destroyed, God's people will be protected by his hand. All right, so the main point of these verses are to discuss pride versus humility, something that just keeps coming to head. The first half of the verses we saw dealt with the concluding remarks of the oracle against Babylon in which the Assyrians were in the time of Isaiah the greatest representation of the proud nations. But they are not the only ones, are they? The Philistines as well believed that they were capable, along with their neighbors, of having enough strength to withstand the torrent of the Assyrians. Despite the attempt, the response from Isaiah is to not trust in a coalition with their pagan neighbors, but to trust in God alone for their assurance. An observation which has come to us repeatedly through Isaiah is the dichotomy between God and ourselves. Even further, when we consider trusting in our own power or the power of this world versus trusting in the power of God. Isaiah continually draws us back to the latter rather than the former. He continues to show us that faithfulness to God will lead to ultimate peace. In light of the events of the world today, it seems wise to consider this. There are temptations for us to be no different than the world in our understanding and our reactions to the things of this world. Yet we are always to be drawn not to the ways and understandings of the world, but to the way and understanding found in God, knowing him to be in complete control of all the situations that we witness. 
Indeed, oftentimes Judah and Israel found themselves to be in situations similar to our own. They were often tempted, just as we are tempted in our own day. Trust in the world. Trust in yourselves. Trust in a power other than God. And you will find success in your personal life and even in your congregations and their ministries. Thus, the temptation is often there. It's lurking in the background, encouraging us to turn aside by whatever norm and cultural understanding is before us. We are continually encouraged to be reeds in the wind, swaying to and fro rather than standing on the firm and solid grounding of God. These temptations are insidious in their ways, for they can come from within but also from without. The Philistines actually provide us a good example of both, don't they? They saw the events and believed that they could overcome. That pride, that trust in self, led to them believing that they could be saved by themselves. The temptation to look out at our surroundings and judge things with our own eyes and our own means. The temptation to rise up without considering our own morality or ethics. The temptation of attaining what we desire. Ignoring whether what we desire is the will of God or not. Indeed, we learn from James how this kind of temptation takes place when he says, <laughs> when he says Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For then he who has stood the test, uh, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire what it has conceived gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James 1, 12-15. As such, there is an element of temptation which comes from within ourselves. But what does James say? Blessed are those who remain steadfast under trial. Temptations from within will come because we are prone to our inner desires. Be on the lookout then for such temptations, lest you fall into the trap of sin. For the Philistines, it was a sense of pride believing that they could secure themselves by themselves. Ultimately, it led to their destruction. Consider the temptation. Consider the sin it leads to and consider the results of your sins. For the result will always be destruction of something, whether it be relational or self. Yet we also see how the temptation comes from without as well. Those in the wrong, the Philistines, were quick to send for others to aid in their coalition. How often is this the case? Where one falls into temptation, whether it be pride as in the case of the Philistines or some other temptation to sin, and then it leads others to do the same. And as such, what Christ says is important about this when he says, And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause of these little ones to sin. Luke 17, 1 through 2. It's a harsh one, isn't it? As such, we are reminded that temptations come because of our desires. If people know our desires, it is possible for them to seek to bring out those desires regardless of if it's good to follow them or not. Um, 
Yeah, I'm not going to say much, sir. We're going to keep going. In the case of the Philistines, they could see a desire to end the yoke which had been placed on them by Assyria, and they could see the desire for that yoke to be taken off of their neighbors. Yet to follow the course of desire would be unwise and lead to further destruction, which is exactly what happened. But the truth is, it isn't just in broader society that this is the case. And we could consider this all the time, couldn't we? We could look out at, you know, watch TV, for example, and you could see the temptations that always occur whenever you're watching a program on TV. You could see it on the news, too, to believe kind of whatever they tell you to believe, um, whether conservative or liberal. You could go ahead and you could watch all these things, and you can talk to people who are on church, and you could be tempted by what they're saying and the ideas that they're presenting. Um, And we could talk about the broader society. But the truth is, it isn't just pagans who care nothing of God where temptations can occur. It can even happen in our congregations, which um, seeks not faithfulness to God and his ways, but congregations that seek their own ways. Those who believe that success is measured in numbers rather than faithfulness. While numbers can be easier to quantify for sure, what brings true growth in individuals in corporate um, Identity is faithfulness. But how great the temptation to not rely on faithfulness or God's faithfulness to his word. How great a temptation it is to trust in ourselves. Indeed, we see it. The question then becomes, what will keep us from the temptation? And further, since Christ says temptations will occur, what can keep us from the sin which comes when temptations arise within us and outside of us and we follow? We find it in Isaiah's final phrase, don't we? The Lord has founded Zion, and in her the afflicted of his people find refuge. Isn't there an interesting parallel there with their own time? How many believe that the affliction, in this case temptation to sin or an affliction, they face can be overcome if they should just rise above it on their own? If they should have their own ideology and then they will find an end to their affliction. Yet what do we find? Oftentimes it leads not to an end of their affliction, but even greater afflictions brought upon themselves or it leads to them afflicting others. Meanwhile, to be truly free of our affliction requires us to turn toward God in his ways, finding our peace not in ourselves, but in the one who brings the greatest peace, which comes from himself. Finding a foundation which is greater than human origin and instead turning upon an eternal foundation, which is able to survive all the changes and struggles that accompany the passage of time. God himself is that foundation. Ultimately, it is God who will keep the temptations out. And if not the temptations, then the strength to overcome. If we should have faith in what he has promised, then we would know and trust in him alone to lead our congregations, to lead our families, to lead ourselves into eternal glory. Anything which would cause us to deviate from the course, anything which would cause us to trust in something other than God, it will be our downfall. A few weeks ago, we had questions and answers. And something Mike and I talked about was how easy it is for congregations to kind of fall into this business model. I'm not sure who said it, if it was Mike or I, but there was a quick quip where one of us said in that moment that our business at this church is going to be faithfulness. 
Our business model is faithfulness. That is the business model. Faithfulness to not rely on ourselves, but faithfulness to trust in God and his faithfulness to lead and sustain us regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in. From this oracle, we can be encouraged to do just this. Whether we be small and poor, like sheep grazing on the side of a hill, or if we should be large in the city, in the end, if our hope and assurance is in God, then we know we will have peace. Peace like a river flowing from God, leading to peace with each other and even ourselves in society. Be encouraged then to understand the fruit which comes from faithfulness to God. Let us each be individuals who seek God's will above all. And let us be a congregation which seeks God's will, trusting in him. For he is faithful in all things, never turning aside from his purposes. Therefore, um, there is no safer place for us than to be in the faithful hands of God. Let's not seek pride then, nor let us seek assurances of this world. Instead, let us seek God and his glory now and forevermore. And naturally, this leads us to the gospel of Jesus. And actually, I found much of the gospel in this passage in a way. Um, Now, the gospel begins with our origins. In that case, that all of us are created in God's image. God is the first cause of all the universe. And at night, I mean, how many people go out at night sometimes and they look up at a star and they think, how beautiful is that? Or they can see the Milky Way galaxy and they can think, wow, how marvelous is that? Um, and if you're a teenager in angst and you think, wow, look how pathetic and I have no purpose in this world kind of a thing, you can lead to that. But still, what we find, do you know what kind of quells that teenage angst? Um, it's the fact that you're creating the image of God. Even though all the stars and all the galaxies in this whole universe was created by God himself, he said of humanity, men and women, Of all races, you're made in my image. You have the greatest of purposes in this world. Even greater than the angels. Did you know that? And so God, he is the creator of all things. And he's made each of us. And it's from this that we have this dignity and sanctity and worth to life that is given to all people. And why we respect people. And we love people. It's because we are made in his image. But when you have something that is so beautifully made, and you, sorry, and you have something which is so wonderful, then how atrocious is it when we see it fall? It makes me think of, let's say, a Van Gogh. Does anyone know Van Gogh? A little bit. No. Starry, starry, star night. Like, you know, some beautiful painting. How about Da Vinci? You know, some of his works. We think about all these wonderful, like, people who have created these masterpieces. And let's say one day, you know, we go to a museum and they're, they're just a big bunch of these wonderful artists and all their paintings, and then Mike comes with a big bucket of paint and just splashes over all of them. I mean, we would be a little mad at Mike. <laughs> Sorry, Mike, I had to use you. We would be a little upset with Mike. We'd be like, Mike, what are you doing? This is a masterpiece. And imagine how God must feel when he looks at us. Because we are the masterpiece. And it's not even though as we just throw pain on each other, we also purposefully cut and abuse ourselves through our sin. And we 
have so much pride in ourselves and we fall so far from God's glory and what he has desired of us and we see this broken world and we wonder how. Well, the how is sin. The how is when we place ourselves higher than God and believe that we can accomplish on our own. And we are worthy of judgment because of our sins, because of not only how we abuse ourselves, but how we abuse others in this world, in this relationship that we have with God, which we sometimes curse and hinder. The question then is, how can we be redeemed? How can we find peace? Because with sin, there is no peace. And the answer is found not in your ability to overcome like the Philistines thought, but in the fact that God has found a way. He has secured Zion himself. And that's through Jesus Christ. And through the person of Jesus Christ, we have redemption. We have atonement through his blood. That through him, we are able to overcome. Not because we are so strong, but because God has done it. And by faith, by faith, we are redeemed. And we see that element here. And what does it lead if we should follow? If we follow after God, it leads to the affliction being cast away. It leads to a city of peace. It leads to those who were once in so much pain, no longer having pain. And it leads to us no longer causing pain, but having that peace flow from us to the world. But if we should continue to seek ourselves, it doesn't lead there. It leads to death, just like it did for the Philistines, just as it did for Assyria, just as it eventually did for Babylon. And so we always have to be cautious. We always have to be checking ourselves because the choices we make, they matter in this world. God has ordained that our choices matter. So I would encourage all of you to continue to seek God. Continue to seek his righteousness and continue to seek faith in Jesus Christ, his son, because it's in him that this world can be changed and we can be changed. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you have accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you so much for the oracles against these nations, not because we are so joyful at their destructions per se, Lord, but that we are so joyful over the fact that you are a God who is in control. And if it is true that you are in control of these great nations of the past, then you are in control over the nations now. And you are in control over the things that happen in our lives now. And so, Lord, we ask that we would be a people who would desire your will. That we would seek to honor you above all. And that we would know that it is only through your gospel that things can change. Let us be bold to declare your name, Lord. Bold to declare what you have done. And it's in your son that we pray. Amen. Please rise.